Well, great. We're uh, jumping into a new series this week called Why Jesus, and it's going to be taking us up until Easter, April 5th. And what we're going to do is we're just taking different aspects of Jesus, the person of Jesus, and we're going to examine it. We're going to look at it from different perspectives, and then uh, we're actually walking through the book of Hebrews as well as our guide. And Hebrews is a very complex book. But before we jump into the passage for today, what if I said after service today, I cannot wait to go home, lay on the couch, stare into my wife's big, blue, beautiful eyes, and run my hand through her wavy, blonde hair. Or what have I said, (laughs) says the wife. You know, after service, I can't wait for you new people to meet my wife, Linda Moore. She just graduated with a health degree from Eastern Michigan, and she's doing fantastic in her career at Ford. It's really taken off. And man, we just had our second child. Praise God. I can't wait for you to meet her. What's wrong with these scenarios, right? I'd be in trouble, first of all, right? It already sounds like I am in trouble. Yeah. Uh, So for those of you who know us, you know that the first one was a very inaccurate description of my wife, who was over here, who happens to have black hair and brown eyes, all right? Uh, so in the second description, although it was accurate at some point in her life, it is no longer who she is. It was an older picture of who she was. It was a correct picture, but an incomplete. One is inaccurate. The other is incomplete. No matter how genuine I am, like no matter like, oh, I can't wait to stare in her blue eyes and like I'm totally selling it to people. No matter how genuine and convincing I am, it doesn't matter if my information is inaccurate or incomplete, right? That person is not Linda. She's not my wife, right? My wife has black hair and brown hair, right? The second picture is very incomplete. As much as I wish uh, we were making money the way that we did when she was a corporate Ford, uh, that is no longer who she is. That is an incomplete picture of who she is. That's who she was. Uh, In the same way, inaccurate and incomplete pictures of God are not God. Inaccurate pictures and incomplete pictures of God are not God. Our worship means very little if the God we're worshiping is inaccurate or incomplete. All right, so it doesn't matter how devote, it doesn't matter how, how great you feel inside if you're worshiping a God who is inaccurate or incomplete. As a matter of fact, genuine devotion to a God who is incomplete or inaccurate is just as much idolatry. And so this is a very important concept for us to understand who Jesus is and who God is. And likewise, if you or your friend is a skeptic and they're skeptical about a God who is inaccurate or incomplete and they choose to reject God wholesale, they're actually throwing out the baby with the bathwater. They're maybe, you know, risking rejecting the real God by trying to deconstruct a false God. Does that make sense? So a lot of people spend a lot of time deconstructing God who really isn't the God of reality or the God of the Bible. So there really is a a need for us to ask this question, why? Like, who is this person, Jesus? Are are we thinking about him accurately? And uh, again, here's my tweetable for this week. It's not, you know, as profound as my other tweets. Uh, Follow me, K-O-B-X-W-M. 
But a false view of Jesus is probably more responsible for making atheists and unbelievers than Darwinism. Think about that. That the wrong picture of Jesus is probably to blame for for more atheists and unbelievers than Darwinism or name any other kind of system that you know, society says that is you know, up against uh, the Christian worldview. And so that's some things for us to kind of think through. As a Christian, you should be asking yourself, who did I just sing songs to earlier? Like, who, who was it that I just sing songs to? As a skeptic, you should ask yourself, you know, who is it that you're really doubting? Like, encourage those of your friends who maybe are doubting God. Like, have you really thought about the person that you're doubting? Are you doubting a caricature of God? Or are you actually doubting, like, an accurate version of him? So as we jump into Hebrews, um, Hebrews actually makes a lot of bold statements about who God is, in particular through Jesus. And so um, in the opening verses of chapter 1, he makes a very accurate and complete, like, um, kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, supposition of who God is uh, found in the person of Jesus. And so this is what the Hebrew writer writes. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by prophets, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Kelly, you were having a hard time earlier because these are run-on sentences all throughout Hebrew. I had to take three breaths just to read that. Uh, Imagine reading it in the Greek. There is no periods. Uh, yeah, there are three things from this passage that actually talk about the nature of Jesus and his relationship with God, okay? And so um, in our minds that Jesus and God the Father are two separate beings, we'll, we'll kind of come back to that. But in Hebrews, he's actually drawing them into a relationship with one another. And these are the three things that he, he uses to define the relationship. Number one, Jesus is God's final word to us. We'll get back to that in a little bit. Number two, Jesus is God's exact imprint of his nature. Jesus says it in this way uh, in the book of John. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father, okay? Uh, And then number three is Jesus holds the universe together by the word of God's power. And so Jesus is holding the universe together. There's kind of this neat thing called laminin. Have you guys ever heard of laminin? It's kind of a cute illustration. I don't think you can put too much into it. But laminin is this protein that holds, it's a cell, sorry. It's a cell that holds proteins together. It's an adhesive, okay? If you, like, go ahead, I'll give you permission. Pull out your phone right now because I need a drink anyways. Pull out your phone, type into it laminin, all right? Ready, sit, go, and then let me get a drink of water. Laminin, L-A-M-I-N-I-N. I'm just stalling. It looks like a cross, doesn't it? Right? I'm not saying that God did that necessarily, okay? Sure he did. Why why, why wouldn't we say that? So laminin holds everything together. And it happens to look like the picture of the cross. Okay? It just happens to look like the picture of the cross. And so what, what, uh, what Hebrews, the Hebrews writer is saying is that it is through Jesus that holds the universe together, okay? It is the laminin of the universe. 
Okay. So Hebrews actually pulls no punches. It's not talking about Jesus as if he was a prophet, a good teacher, a sage, a regular man. Just after 30 years after Jesus died and resurrected, he is now being described as a divine man. Okay? So a little bit of background in the book of Hebrews so that we're doing some kind of legwork that we won't have to do for the next couple of weeks. Um, but the book of Hebrews is an epistle, which means it was a letter written right around 63 to 67 A.D., very early, earlier than some of the actual uh, Gospels. Uh, it gives us the most sophisticated Christology. Let's say that word together. Christology. All right. Uh, Christology just tries to answer the question, who is Jesus in essence? All right, who is he? All right. So as you read the book of Hebrews, you're reminded that in Jesus' lifetime, there were Jewish people, monotheistic worshipers, who loved the Old Testament and followed it literally, some even legalistically. They followed the Old Testament wholeheartedly. And something happened that convinced them that while the Old Testament was accurate, it was also incomplete. That's a very difficult thing to do. It's akin to us, somebody coming to us and trying to convince us that Jesus is not the only way if you're a Christian. All right? And so something drastically happened to these early first century Jews that made them say, okay, the Bible is still accurate, but it's incomplete. All right, and so the Hebrews writer says that in the past, God spoke to us in, uh, in certain ways through prophets. Now his final word is through Jesus. So Jesus came along, and it was like the picture of the Old Testament became sharper. It was like the colors began to pop more, all right? Sound like these red banners. They're just kind of, I hope you guys don't get seizures because they're so red. Uh, but the colors just started popping more. The, the audio was just so much more clearer. It was like there were subtitles for even those who were non-Jewish. And they began to understand the Old Testament. Jesus made complete sense of the Old Testament to both the Jews and to the non-Jews. It just became a little bit more clear. Just five years after the book of Hebrews was written... Jews could no longer practice Judaism in the way that they had been for thousands of years. Until this day, there is no such thing as a true, orthodox, Bible-following, believing Jew. Did you know that? There is, to this day, no Jew who is following the Old Testament in the way that they should. Does anybody know why? In A.D. 70, Nero tore down the temple, and ever since then, there is no temple for them to worship at. And so they had now use a synagogue system. So the Jews believe that one day the Messiah will come back and they will restore the temple back in Jerusalem. The Muslims are very glad to have the Dome of the Rock there right now. All right. Christians, we believe that we are the temple. All right. And so uh, just five years after Hebrews is written, uh, the whole entire Jewish worship system caved in. And so they developed other ways to do it, very, very ingenious ways. The synagogue system became uh, uh, well-developed, so they began worshiping in that way. But till this day, they cannot practice sacrifices because there is no temple to sacrifice in. Right? So uh, I want to bring up a couple of things uh, as we talk about uh, Jesus as the Son of God. Uh, because uh, naturally when you say that, you know, you worship a man who is God, you get questions, right? Um, and so there are modern rejections to Jesus as the son of God that, um, that in the last couple of decades that Christians have been trying to, 
trying to, you know, give a, a rebuttal to. Uh, you guys are probably familiar with C.S. Lewis's uh, Trilemma. Uh, and so this is the quote, and you've probably read this in Mere Christianity or have heard about this. Uh, if not, that's okay. I'll read it right here. It says, uh, this is Lewis writing. He says, a man who said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. And so what Lewis is arguing here is that Jesus can't be a good teacher if he claimed to be God, but he wasn't really God himself. You can call him a liar, you can call him a lunatic, but you can never call him a good teacher because he wasn't who he said he was. So for many decades, this kind of logic, like this, the logic, it's, it's on this banner actually, um, this kind of logic gave Christians a place of safety. Like, yeah, Jesus, he's either a liar, lunatic, or Lord, and I know he's not a liar, and I know he's not crazy, so he must be Lord. But this morning, I want to play devil's advocate, because in recent times, there has been new scholarship that has tried to debunk kind of this logic, and I think, you know, in some ways, it's gaining some steam. And so I just want to point it out. Over the past couple of decades, some scholars and historians have said that Jesus wasn't a liar, he wasn't a lunatic, he also wasn't a lord, Jesus was a legend. He was a myth, right? Uh, and so there's a guy named Bart Ehrman, he's a professor at Chapel Hill. Uh, his uh, newest book was just released last year. Um, he he kind of comes off the tail of like Jesus seminars and a, a whole tradition of people. Uh, in the book called uh, How Jesus Became God, or how, how Jesus, mere man, became a God. So Ehrman is uh, he's an interesting scholar because he actually used to be an evangelical Christian. So he used to believe like a lot of us, right? And so he's now completely um, from the opposing view. But his book posit, posits two basic arguments about the idea of uh, Jesus as God. All right, the first one is this, and I'm just going to give it to you briefly. I'm not going to talk about his arguments necessarily, but he just says that in the first century, it was very easy in that environment to take a person who was charismatic and say, oh, you are a God because they did that to Caesar, all right? So that's one of the arguments. And the second argument is this, that the Gospels were not eyewitness accounts. They were written very late, and they were written based, to, based on uh, the legend that had already developed. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're not accurate descriptions of Jesus. They're actually reactions to the myth that had developed over the course of 30, 40 years, all right? And so um, uh, Ehrman claims to use a historical method which looks at the early documents uh, of Jesus' life and makes this claim. All right, so Jesus is not who he said he was. He was a, a legend, all right? So um, I'm gonna throw that out there. I'm not gonna debunk that. I don't have time to do it. I'm just saying that that is another argument. But in a modern world, there's two ways right now that uh, you know, our faith as a Christian is trying to be discredited. Number one is the resurrection, and we're leading up to that in Easter. And secondly is this, that if Jesus was not who the Bible says he was, then he had to be made up. He had to be made up, right? These are the two ways in the modern world right now that the people are trying to debunk um, the divinity of Jesus, and not just the divinity of Jesus, but the reality of, of the Bible. So... Uh, if you're interested in kind of the arguments against this uh, idea that Jesus is a legend, um, I'm halfway through this book. It was written as a rebut to Ehrman. It's called How God, 
how God became Jesus. All right. So playing on the title is very clever. How God became Jesus. Uh, he does a pretty good job at uh, countering all of Ehrman's arguments. But the reason why I want to bring up the idea of legend, because I think it's very important. We're going to keep coming. We're going to come back to this idea of legend. All right. Uh, not in the sense that Ehrman thinks it's important because he thinks it actually debunks the idea of Jesus. But then the idea of legend is a very important aspect in which the Jewish people in the first century came to understand Jesus because they had been waiting and wishing and hoping that somebody would come. This legendary figure would come. All right, so we'll get back to that. Um, but before we do that, let me list a couple of attributes of what makes Jesus divine, and then we'll talk about how how Jesus developed as the Messiah and God. All right. Uh, there are so many scriptures throughout the New Testament that talk about the divinity of Christ. You'll find it in John, Colossians, Philippians, all, through over, all throughout the, the Gospels. Obviously, you hear the book of Hebrews. And uh, as you comb through all of them, there are basic ways in which Jesus is talked about as being divine. This is important, Christians, that you understand that these are the ways in which we think of Jesus as divine. Number one, he's always present with God the Father since eternity until his carnation. He's always been present with God the Father. He existed in infinity past, all right? John 1.1, 1, 1, John 17.5, these are references in which Jesus, in John 17.5, Jesus says, I have had glory with the Father since eternity before. Uh, number two is he created the world. Jesus created the world. He wasn't just creation himself. We'll talk about this in a second, but he was actually by the Father's side as the world unfolded. Number three, he not only created it, but he sustains it. Hebrews 1.5, we looked at that earlier. Colossians 1.17, it, it is by Jesus that everything holds together. Number four, he is the exact representation of the Father. To the point where he says, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Colossians 1.15 says this, that he is the exact image of God. All right. Number five is he has been given all authority, and he is over everything, and he rules everything. That is why we worship him. Prior to the first century, Jews would never worship another man. They would only worship God in heaven, God the Almighty. One of the reasons we know that they begin thinking about him as God is they begin writing songs to him in the way that they wrote songs to God the Almighty. They begin worshiping him because they knew that he was the ruler over everything. All right, it's a huge stretch. It was a huge stretch for a Jewish person in the first century to go from that man teaching sermons on, Mount, on, on the side of the mountain to now the God of the universe were worshiping him. Huge stretch. All right, and that's why it's important for us to understand that there is an, uh, there is an idea of legend involved in the first century, All right. Not in the way that Ehrman is talking about how Jesus evolved um, uh, through historical literature, but in the way that the Jews were waiting for somebody. They believed that the Old Testament was literal. Uh, they, they believed that there is coming this figure, who, the Messiah, who was a legendary figure that would help them save Israel, but not just save Israel, but save the rest of the, uh, the world, the nations. Every prophet, every priest, every king in the Old Testament foreshadowed the Messiah. Do you remember learning that in Sunday school if you grew up in church? Right. The Messiah is coming. Right. To this day, most Orthodox Jews, if not all, believe that the Messiah is still coming, 
They are still waiting for the legend to come. All right? The Messiah was legendary and mythical in their minds, but their expectations for him to come was very real. All right? But when Jesus came, he looked so different. When Jesus came, he looked so different from this Messiah. They were expecting a prince, but instead they got a pauper. He did not, in their minds, fit the mold. After three years of observing Jesus, a small band of Jewish believers, not a very big one, but a small band of them, they had their definition of Messiah turned upside down. Their, their idea of the legend and the myth, which was this big, huge figure, that idea imploded and it became this reversal. It was this Messiah who served and gave his life and not a Messiah who came to, to rule over the governments at that time. And so in, in that small band of Jewish followers of Jesus, the pictures in their minds became clearer. The colors seemed to pop. The audio was better. They saw that the picture had non-Jewish subtitles for the Gentiles as well. So they began to read the Old Testament in a new way. When Jesus died and he resurrected, that was, the, that was the pinnacle moment in which they had to say, we grew up a certain way, but this man just wrecked the way that we looked at the world. The, his death, his resurrection, it ruins the way that we used to think about the Old Testament and the way that we used to think about the world. It had to. It had to happen. So the opening lines of Hebrews, it tells us that in the first century, the Jewish converts, they discovered that Jesus himself had a God-like nature. They completely changed the way that they saw creation and purpose, knowing that Jesus was there from the beginning. All right, let's say, let me say that again. They changed the way that they looked at creation. They changed the way that they looked at purpose, because now they realize that in the beginning, Jesus was there too. Let me do an activity for you, okay? Um, fun activity. Close your eyes real quick. Close your eyes. Okay. Think back to your earliest memory. Earliest memory. Raise your hand when you got one. I just want to know if you're doing this activity or not. Okay. 70, okay. 50%, 60, 70. Raise your hand higher. Okay. All right. Okay. 90% of you. Now, how, okay, open your eyes. How many of you in that memory remember Jesus being there? Zero hands. But Jesus is there. And it ruins the way you think about the past when you realize that Jesus has been there all along. So these first century Jewish people, they were trying to struggle with, ah, what? Jesus has been there from the beginning? There's never been anything in creation or in history that he didn't participate in? Like, wow, it's mind-blowing to them. Some of us had these memories in our minds, and I have them too. I have one that's very silly, but I'll share it with you because you need to know how silly things are, but it dictates our life, right? Uh, when I was a child, I was, I was a heavy kid, and so um, I was very self-conscious about my weight. 
my sister whom I love. I don't know why she did this to me, but she did. So we were uh, just hanging out, and so she gave me a purple nurple. And you guys know what that is? Okay, the other, the other like, terminology I use for it isn't very uh, good. So it uh, has to do with, like, twisting, right? Uh, and uh, so it, it hurt me so bad. I was probably about six or seven. Because here I thought this woman who loved me, my, she was like nine years older than me, gave me a purple nurple, right? It insulted me because you can only do that to, to, to little boys that, you know, have something to twist. You can't do it to the thin boys, right? And so I thought she was saying something about me. And so I was very hurt by this. You laugh, but it was very traumatic. And that's, this is the point that I'm trying to make. I thought that being fat was bad for a very very, very long time, a very long time. I thought that having extra weight, extra skin was a negative thing. And so that's just the way that I looked at life, you know. And so one of my goals was as a teenager was to thin out as much as possible because my sister taught me that extra skin was bad. And so we walk around with these memories and these thoughts, and this is the way that we process the world, right? How many of you guys process the world because of a memory like that? Okay, you don't have to raise your hands, but thanks for raising your hands. <laughs> and the Jews in the first century discovered a secret that I think very many of us who have been Christian even all your life that you've not yet discovered, that in every moment, and in every memory, Jesus has been there. That not only was he there, but he in the present time has the capacity to help you process that memory. To redeem that memory. And so this blew the minds of every person who was following Jesus. Because not only were they, was he there in their memories, but they said, he's been there since the beginning. This is what Paul writes in Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. The eternal relationship that God the Father had with Jesus, God the Son, that had been happening long before creation, that relationship, which was in perfect harmony, perfect harmony, that was the context in which God wanted to create the rest of us. Because he already had it with his son, Jesus. Their relationship was the DNA that was embedded into all of creation. We are not a science project of God. We are a natural outflow of a loving, happy family that's been going on for a long time. And we are the outflow of that. The implication of this is this, that we are no longer slaves. We are not considered just servants of God. We don't just have to follow a sacred scripture and bow down and worship to a high and lofty God. The implication is this, because God had a perfect relationship with a son since eternity, and with that mindset, he created all of creation, us included, 
That was meant for us as well. You're not a servant. You're a son and daughter. Jesus had that from the beginning. God wants to give that to us. That's the implication. If you take away Jesus as the son of God, all of that implodes. You're just a servant of God. Our worth is derived from Jesus as the son of God. So our identity is at stake when we say Jesus is not the eternal son of God. Um, the problem of seeing Jesus the wrong way uh, is most seen, um, and I want to be very careful how I say this, uh, in a very close relative to Christians, and that's Muslims, okay? I have very many Muslims in my life that I love that are better people than some of you guys, to be quite honest. <laughs> They're better moral behaving people uh, in, in, in a lot of ways. I'm going to be very careful how I say this. <clears throat> Jesus is the final word, according to Hebrews chapter 1. Muslims would not agree with this because they believe that Muhammad is the last and final, final word. Uh, Muslims are the most devoted people that I've known in terms of religion and good morals. This is true. Uh, I hope we know that what we see on TV is not the same Muslims that live down the street. Just as the Christians who raged the Crusades back in 1026 in the name of Jesus and God, just as those Christians are not the same as you, okay? I know some of you guys may want to push back on that. That's okay. But the Muslims that we see on the headlines on the news are not the same Muslims that are assembling Friday nights for prayer two blocks down the street. Um, <clears throat> but with sadness in my heart towards my Muslim friends is that some believe that Jesus is blue-eyed and blonde-haired. And I'm, I'm not saying that Muslims think that, you know, Jesus is Anglo-European, all right? Even though most movies, he's portrayed that way. Um, I think we've established he looks more like J.J. than anybody else, all right? Um, but I mean that at the core of what Muslims believe about Jesus, at the core of how they believe about Jesus, is flawed. Muslims love Jesus. They revere him, again, more than many people who have been raised in the church. They strive to follow his teachings as much as they understand it. They believe he is born of the Virgin Mary. They believe he is the Messiah. They believe he will come back and restore peace. I don't ever doubt the sincerity of my Muslim friend when he says, I love Jesus, peace be upon him. But like the first century Jews, it was hard for them to conceive the idea that alongside of God, there was a, another person since the beginning. It's very hard for them to conceive that. That creation was not the inspiration for God. Um, that, that worship was not the inspiration for God. But when God created the universe, the inspiration for God was his son. And it's very hard for them to see that. It was his eternal son, Jesus, whom he was in perfect relationship with that inspired him to create. It's that kind of love that he lavishes Onto us, according to 1 John chapter 3. 
that we would be called children of God, and that is what we are. We're not left to obey an ancient book. We're not left to live in the fear and the wrath of a God of justice necessarily, but to be in a dynamic relationship with God through his son Jesus. The Muslims in our day uh, are very much like the first century Jews in Palestine. They want to live holy and devoted lives in complete submission to Allah. That's what it means to be a Muslim, completely submitted to Allah, to God. They want to see a religious state established where righteousness will reign. They want to see Jesus return and bring peace. And just like the first century Jews, I believe it's, it's only a matter of time before they begin to shift to see that not only is he the Messiah, not only is he the leader coming back to bring peace, but he's the inspiration that was next to the Father when everything was created. I think it's going to happen. I think it's going to happen. It's already happening. But if it happened in first century Palestine, I think it'll happen again. I think our minds will be blown when we see a portion of the 1.4 billion people on this earth make that switch in their heads. That he's just a prophet. So now, he was there from the beginning. Jesus does not have baby blue eyes and wavy blonde hair. The Bible says he has hair that is white as wool. And his eyes are like flames of fire. As according to Revelation 1.14. The description of Jesus is God himself. I think Muslims one day will stop looking at him in this incorrect light and see him with white hair and flames of fire. Um, sorry. <laughs> I just feel very uh, passionate about that. I think it's going to happen. Don't you think it's going to happen? Come on, church. I think it's going to happen. All right. It will change everything about this planet when it happens. It's, it's changing already. Most, most Christians on this planet uh, look like me or Janique. The shift is happening. The powers of the church are no longer in Europe or in the West. God is doing something that we can't do ourselves. I want to end by talking about what's happening in China. All right. Because everybody says that in a world like Toronto or in a city like Toronto or in a country like Canada or like Europe, we're way too secular and we're way too post-Christian to ever embrace this idea that Jesus is not just a good prophet, but he's the son of God. Hebrews 2, 7 and 8 says this, tells us not to lose hope. Like we know, we know that at the present time that we don't see everything in subjection to him. We know that. That's what the Hebrew writer is saying. But there is hope for secular society, and we're seeing this in China. All right. Uh, currently, China is the most atheist country on the planet. Uh, in the last 50 years, that's been changing. Uh, after the Cultural Revolution, religion was marginalized. It was pushed away. You can't serve on the Communist Party and be a religious person. 
Um, but what we've saw over the last 40 years was the growth of Christianity, not just among the rural regions, but also in the urban. And it's very interesting to see how, it growing, how it's growing in the urban uh, cities. All right. Um, in 15 years, this is just sociological projections, all right? This is like really, this is not just like an educated guess. It's like sociology. Sociologists are projecting these numbers. That in 2030, in 15 years, China will be the largest Christian nation in the world. They will have more Christians in the borders of China than any other country in, in all the world. All right. Well-calculated sociological uh, predictions. I'll give you the book if you want to read it. Uh, in the 1990s, many academics started studying Christianity because they thought it was the key to developing a progressive Western mindset. So they're like, oh, look at those Westerners over there. They're developing so quick compared to us over here. Why don't we study Christianity because we think that's the key? All right. So many of these academics have become scholars. They, they call themselves cultural, cultural Christians. And you can, you can Google this and learn a lot about cultural Christians. We kind of use that as a negative term, like in, in China. It's like actually, hey, I'm a cultural Christian, right? It's kind of like a, a positive thing, right? So they try to act and behave like what they would think Westerners um, act and behave like. Um, I'd be interested, you guys can talk to Dick Kuyper. He stayed in uh, China for a long time. Most of your parents are from China. You can ask them. Uh, <laughs> uh, Hong Kong. Uh, Christianity became somewhat of a trend among university campuses. In the book, Religion in China, Survival and Revival Under Communist Rule, uh, Yang Nang Yang, or sorry, Fang Nang Yang is the sociologist who wrote this. Who wrote this. He's a professor um, in uh, D.C. And he documents how Christianity is growing among the intellectuals of China. Okay. It's a very interesting phenomena. Very interesting phenomena. What happened was back in the 90s, all these people started studying Christianity, started writing books about it. Because why? Because... Christians can't write books and have them be published in China, obviously, right? But if you're a professor who doesn't profess Christi Christianity, if you write about Christianity, you can publish books, okay? So these, cult these, uh, these uh, academics and intellectuals started writing books, and they started publishing about Christianity, and the university students started picking them up. And some of them adopted the idea of being a cultural Christian. Some of them adopted the idea of Jesus. Let me correct that statement. Some of them were adopted by Jesus. And among the intellectual class, you have this like wave of young people who hold church in McDonald's. Uh, it's crazy what's happening there. The most atheist secular society in our planet among the intellectuals, people turning to Jesus as the Son of God. It's happening, and it will happen again. It will happen. Jesus will not leave us behind. So I want to end with this. Ben, you guys can come up. <coughs> <coughs> Hebrews 2.9 says that we see him for a little while who was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory in honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus is like a pauper who has become a prince. That's why his word is the final revelation of God. 
If Jesus isn't God, then all he has to do is share good advice with us. If Jesus isn't God, everything that he says to us is just self-help. If Jesus isn't God, then everything that he is sharing with us in his word, the things that have been written about him, are just recommendations and opinions. But if Jesus is God, then his word is final. Most of us want a Jesus that have good things to, to speak into our lives. Most of us want a Jesus that will improve us. Very few of us want a Jesus that tells us what's wrong in our lives. But it's Jesus, the Son of God, who says, no, that's wrong in your life. But he doesn't keep it wrong. He fixes it. That's the Jesus that died on the cross, who says, I am God, and we'll talk about this next week, because we're going to talk about the humanity of Jesus. I'm God made flesh to take away every sin. I don't mind pointing out your sins, because in doing that, I know that I can absorb it and take away the punishment of it. And last thing, and this is for, for those of us who are Christians. Um, you know, we have very many people who believe in God, and there's Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons, and uh, some of them I think I might even see in heaven. I don't know. Um, but one thing's for certain, that if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, there's, you have to be moved. There's something about that that you have to be moved when you know that there are other people worshiping a God who in their mind has blue eyes and blonde hair. Because you know that's not your God. There's something about that that should move you when you know that there are people assembling week after week and they're worshiping somebody who's less than the God of the Bible. I don't know, Trinity Life, how to, to get us to be passionate about this. Only other than this, that you spend time with him. You spend time with him. Develop his heart. You look into his eyes to know that it's not blue. You spend enough time with him to know that his hair is not curly and wavy and blonde. And when you spend enough time with him, you will begin to see what's true and what's not true about him. And that's my challenge to us as a church. Let's do this. Let's do it out of worship. And let's do it for those who see him in a different way.